I just wanted to repeat that, you know, the Wewakai Nation has not agreed to losing our Section 87 tax exemption. Um, you know, that's the, the biggest one for, for a lot of members is, you know, why would we want to give up something we already have? We always want to keep moving moving forward. So, I, you know, we're going to still push hard to keep that. Like, I mean, there's no point in, to me in signing a treaty if, you, if you're giving up those rights that we already have. It just, it makes no sense, in, in my opinion. You're listening to the Treaty Talk Podcast. Today's topic is Section 87 with the most updated information as of July 2021. Stay informed with these podcasts as we continue to push the government into negotiating a treaty that is optimal for a community to sign off on. So today we have uh, Bram Robochevsky. Uh, he's our chief negotiator for the Liquida Treaty Society. We also have Josh Rowland. He's our summer student and also a member of the Wewakai. And myself, Ronnie Chikite, elected chief of the Wewakai First Nation and also a board member for the Treaty Society. Um, today we're going to talk uh, Section 87. Um, we also have uh, other methods of information that we'd like to get out to the membership. So, you know, starting this year, we've you know, we stuff a newsletter, you know, the website, social media is going to be a you know, big play. Also, you know, we're trying to do a virtual uh, Zoom monthly lunch and learns. Um, we're not sure exactly which day, if it's going to be like, a, let's say it's a Wednesday every month, but we're definitely going to try to have a, these lunch and learns. Also, the open house meetings, as well as a more formal meetings when we're safe to do so, you know, that we've turned the corner on the pandemic. And lastly, you know, these podcasts that we're going to try seeing this is our inaugural uh, podcast. So this is something new that, we, that we've had the idea of and we're thinking it, it may be helpful. And also if anyone has other suggestions for us to use of meth methods of communication, we'd love to hear about them. Um, you, so you can email us at uh, info at LKTS, or you can call the office at 250 287-9460. I would like to pass it over to Bram so he can introduce himself and talk about his role as the chief negotiator. Thanks, Chief Ronnie. Uh, good morning. And uh, thanks, Josh, for uh, for getting this podcast series going. I think it's uh, an interesting uh uh, interesting uh, format, and and hopefully it'll it'll help. I know I know the focus is is trying to get as much information out to as many members as possible. So hopefully, you know, with the list that that Ronnie went through, this is one of the ways that we can um, that we can reach out to to um, to folks in the community and hopefully have uh, interactive dialogue as well as we go forward. Um, and I know I've met many members, but but certainly not everyone. Um, I am the, the chief negotiator for the Treaty Society. Um, and as the chief negotiator, um, my job is to uh, is to advocate for the positions and the interests of, of, of the nation and uh, through the society and the treaty. I act as kind of the primary spokesperson uh, for, for, for the nation in the, in the context of the negotiations where I take the instructions uh, from the board. 
um, and work uh, collaboratively with our team uh, to bring those interests uh, forward as strongly as possible at the treaty negotiation table. Um, and also kind of have primary responsibility for engaging with, with my counterparts at the chief negotiator level in the provincial and federal system to develop the relationships at the table and away from the table that are really crucial to being able to, to make the progress that, that Chief Ronnie talked about. And, and there has been significant progress over the last few years. So uh, I'm privileged to have to have the role and, and to have the, the, the trust in, in the, from the leadership and, and community to, to represent the, the nation in these uh, really important negotiations. So thanks for having me. So why don't you uh, introduce yourself, Josh? and tell us why you wanted to be a summer student at the Liquido Treaty Society. Thanks, Ronnie. Uh, my name is Josh Rowland. I am a member of the Wiwakai Nation and a student at VIU studying business. As Ronnie said, I am the summer student at Liquido Treaty Society for this year. One of the main reasons I wanted the job at the Treaty Society was so I could connect with and support my people in a greater way than I was previously. So far, my experience at the Treaty Society has offered me uh, much knowledge in terms of the ongoing treaty negotiations, as well as how it's going to affect my people's future. Um, additionally, I've learned many valuable skills that I know will transfer well into my education and eventually my career. I continue to learn other skills through experiences, and this podcast is one of those experiences. So I hope you enjoy the listen, and I, I look forward to hearing your questions and opinions on this new way of communication. I'm going to pass it back over to Ronnie so we can introduce the first line of questions. Um, Brown, uh, why don't you tell us what Section 87 is and why it's so important for many First Nations? Sure. So, so Section 87 um, is, is the section of, uh, of, of the Indian Act that provides a specific exemption uh, for, 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 for Indigenous uh, people. Um, and you know, obviously, it's it's a part of uh, it's a part of legislation. It's part of the Indian Act, which I think we all understand to be a, a colonial piece of legislation. So it's no secret, or it wouldn't be a surprise that that the origin of the tax exemption also comes from a, you know, a colonial mindset. It and it actually dates back from from prior to, to Confederation. And there was the view that, you know, eventually. Um, you know, indigenous peoples would be assimilated in, in, into the, the, the majority, uh, into the settler population and, and be forced to abandon their cultures and way of life. And, and the thought was is that, you know, in the meantime, um, because uh, indigenous communities and people are being kind of uh, put, put into reserves and, and, and essentially forced to, to, make, to, to stay on reserves and, and be alienated from, the, from their lands and, and, and resources. Uh, the idea was that the, the, the lands and property tied to reserve should be protected from settler encroachment until assimilation actually took place. And so um, the tax exemption, which dates prior to Confederation, um, became a part of the colonial legislation, became, became a part of the, the Indian Act, the first version of the Indian Act. And it's essentially maintain, been maintained unchanged um, until, uh, in, until today. So, it's still, so it still, still exists as, as, as Section 87. Um, you know, it's, because, it, because it's, a, it's, it's a part of legislation, um, uh, you know, and uh, it, it, it can be changed. 
Um, obviously, it's it stood the test of time um, as the Indian Act is, but we know that there's now a significant push to be doing away eventually with the Indian Act, and we know that 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 nations have have removed. Uh, themselves out of the Indian Act in really important ways, including through the Land Act and and and, and other forms as well. Um, so the Section 87 exemption is 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 has been around for quite a long time. Um, it can it, it it continues to to exist today. Um, it really is tied to land, um, and um, we know through the interpretation of Section 87 on a go-forward basis, the, the, the way the courts have interpreted the exemption and the way the courts have interpreted the breadth and scope of the exemption um, is that really it is, is it's tied to the reserve interest. Um, and, and, and really the, the rationale is to ensure that, that the, the use of, of property uh, on reserve isn't eroded by the ability of governments to tax uh, or the ability of creditors to seize assets on reserve. It has never been, the rationale for it has never been to remedy the economically disadvantaged position of, of Indigenous people, um, even, we, even though we know um, uh, that, that removing uh, the exemption, as we talk about in treaty, will have a detrimental impact. Um, but from, from the perspective of, of the federal government, um, really it's been about maintaining the, the integrity of the reserves. Um, and that's why the interpretation of it of, and the applicability of Section 87 really is linked to reserve and the connecting factors that you need to have to reserve in order to claim the exemption under Section 87. Um, so for many years, you know, our members have, have opposed treaty. treaty. Um, you know, three of the huge obstacles have, you know, been the, the loan forgiveness, title recognition, and Section 87 to me is the big one. But so recently, two of the three obstacles have been overcome, but it, it has taken a lot of time. I, I fully understand that our members would not vote on a treaty that phases out tax exemption. Um, but maybe we can talk about the possible alternatives that Canada has presented to recently. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, as, as you're saying, Ronnie, that this is um, this has been the fundamental issue uh, for, for lots of communities. And, and even though kind of when you look at it, and we'll talk about it a bit, um, many members of the community don't actually benefit from the, the tax exemption. Many do, but many don't. Um, and, and also, you know, even though, and we'll talk about this, the majority, the vast majority of tax revenue uh, would flow back to the nation, uh, which is a very important part of a nation governing. We know that it's it, that that it's just a barrier. Uh, it, it, it's a barrier to, to 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 being able to look at the treaty and the benefits of the treaty and weigh them because the, the loss of the exemption is so important to people. Um, and from a principled perspective, it's it's something that 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 communities are are not going to be able to 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 agree to. So we have to look at alternatives. So just before I get to that, just just so we're clear, you know, the the current model in treaties um, is a phase out uh, of the Section 87 tax exemption. Um, and what that means is that after effective date of the treaty, so of course a treaty gets ratified and then some years later the treaty becomes effective when, when the nation's ready for it, um, there then starts a phase out period. And the phase out period for transactional taxes, uh, sales tax, for example, 
is eight years after the effective date, um, and then 12 years for other forms of taxes, income tax and property taxes. So during the phase out period, even though you no longer have a reserve, the tax exemption still remains in place and the connecting factors that you need in order to actually, uh, um, in order to qualify for the tax exemption continue to apply even though the land isn't the reserve, isn't reserve anymore. But after the eight years and after the 12 years, you see that exemption uh, fade away. Um, and, you know, I think um, that's been what the work that we've been doing has really been attached to that phase out period because the phase out period doesn't really have a principal basis, the eight years and the 12 years. It's just something that was negotiated in the initial treaties and it's kind of stuck. And so the view is, is that we need to, at the very least, move those transition periods further down the road if they exist at all. Um, and I think the first, you know, the first desired outcome would be for their to, to not be a phase out at all, um, and the exemption to simply continue as it exists today. If that doesn't occur, and if there's a view that the exemption will continue, uh, that, that the loss of the exemption will still be a feature of modern treaties, the goal is to attempt to move that far, far down the line. So it's not an issue that affects ratification of a treaty today. So when folks are looking at a treaty that's brought to them, they're gonna look at it and say, okay, I maintain the status quo, I maintain my exemption for at least a period of 50 years, say. Um, and that allows me to kind of be free to look at the agreement and see, does it work for all of the other reasons that are in front of you? So what we've started to talk about um, is an option to uh, to move the exemption uh, to 50 years, uh, to, to maintain the exemption from 50 years uh, for 50 years instead of the 8 to 12. And I think there's some good reasons for that. One, as I've articulated, is the ratification. So, so people of voting age won't actually be seeing that most of them within within their um, within the time that they're going going to have the earning capacity um, and and those types of things to to apply uh, to, to to benefit from the exemption. And also, when you're doing planning uh, on reserve and on your treaty lands, you know you've got a 50-year window to do that planning and that tax planning uh, for when the, the exemption could, um, uh, could, 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 finally, uh, could finally lift after 50 years. Um, it's also important to know that, that, that if, if, if it happened and if the 50 year happens, there would be um, means to kind of look at this in 50 years and say, well, does it make sense? And there's a couple of ways of doing that. And, and we'll probably tackle this in, in later podcasts, but one of the main kind of um, uh, advances that we've made in treaty negotiations over the last couple of years is this concept of periodic renewal. It used to be that, you know, you sign a treaty on Monday, on Tuesday, the world changes and a major decision comes down from the Supreme Court of Canada or something else happens and you're stuck because you signed your treaty on Monday. What we've done is we've built in a periodic renewal model, which allows the treaty to be opened up in increments of five and 10 years to be able to look at the treaty to say, is it doing what we want it to do? Is it keeping up with case law? Is it keeping up with changes in policy? And perhaps more importantly, is it doing the work in terms of narrowing socioeconomic gaps and make, making sure that it's building the foundation for the nation to succeed? And, we'll, and, and that's across the board. 
But how we would use it in this context is to say, okay, after 50 years, we would take a look at how the treaty's doing. We would take a look at how the nation's doing in terms of its economic self-sufficiency. And we would say, is it, re is it ready? Does it make sense at this point to phase out the exemption? If it does, then that's something that would happen. If it doesn't, there's an opportunity to say, wait, there's a lot of good reasons for why this should continue on. So it wouldn't be like a firm 50 years if that's where it went, but it is a proposal and an option that's going forward. And it seems to be getting some resonance in the federal resonance in the federal system. Canada knows this has to change. They just have a system, especially in Ottawa, that's very, very entrenched in this from a from a tax policy perspective. And it's taking a lot of work for mindsets to change. So these are discussions that are happening. Still a long way to go, but 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 some exciting opportunities there. So, you know, so it's interesting after all these years, the government is willing to talk about uh, changes to the tax exemption. You know, I've received some questions from community members that relate to Section 87. And, you know, the one question was with other nations that have signed treaty and with the eight and 12 year phased out approach, I'm curious if we can find out how other nations uh, have implemented taxation to their members and how they're doing you know, if it's possible to hear their challenges and successes. Yeah, I think it's a really good example. And I think, you know, um, there, there, there's going to be some similarities with, uh, with Wibukai just in terms of your potential to have lots of development on your treaty lands. Um, you know, so, so, there's, so there's some things that, that can be looked at. And, and certainly, I think a lot of what we've been doing through treaty negotiations is a lessons learned model all the way from NISCA forward to kind of see what's working, what hasn't been working and to try to build on successes and maybe make some changes where changes are necessary. You know, I think in terms of other nations, one of the main experiences, and I guess the concern and fear about, about this in some ways is that individuals may choose not to enroll in the treaty because they want to protect their tax exemption. So if a member, for example, is working on reserve, uh, earning a good income on reserve, and they then are, are faced with this really difficult decision. And I know this happened in TLAM and quite a bit where, where, where folks were really supportive of the treaty, but because of that one, uh, because of the implication of losing that exemption, because of the implication of, of, of losing that, 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 share, that, that important share of their, uh, of, uh, of their salaries from an income tax perspective, people made decisions not to enroll and that had implications. So I think we need to learn more and talk to nations about how they dealt with that situation. Um, and I think we're gonna learn that we need to keep pushing for a change. But, but Ronnie, I think to your question, hearing about how self-governing nations have really taken advantage of the ability to tax, I think is really important. I think we know that one of the most important things for a self-governing nation is the ability to tax and the ability to levy taxes on um, uh, non-members who are residing on treaty lands, um, who, are, um, uh, who may be working uh, on, on treaty lands, um, is, is, and or may be conducting business on treaty lands, is really important. And I think the way that the tax structure is set up is that there's, there, is this, there is this view that there has to be kind of a baseline that's set up where everyone's getting taxed, and that really opens the door for the government really to kind of see some significant revenue from taxation. And I think if you talk to, to, to Tawasin, you'll hear, for example, that a huge source of, their, uh, of the revenue from their government 
uh, will come in by way of by way of taxation. So I think it's a good idea. I think you know in in, in our future work we've heard a bit, um, but in our future work as we move forward on this, it's going to be important to kind of get some more lessons learned and understand from self governing nations how they've utilized their their ability to tax to uh, to uh, uh, to buttress the funding that's coming in from other sources, right? Because it's it's always going to be really important to to bring in own source revenue from a variety of sources. So let's say that the government uh, decided it is not going to negotiate any changes to the current model and we need to stay with the eight and 12 uh, phased out approach. You know, let's just use it as a scenario. A community member asked me what, what rates will be used for the tax. Um, does the nation have the ability to set their own rates? And it's also my understanding that the CRA taxation rates for income GST and the PST will apply also along with the municipal rates for property tax. However, I'm less sure of how the PST works into this picture. You know, does it flow back to the nation as well or does that become retained at the provincial level? Um, you know, are there also taxes that do not flow back to the nation after full transition to being taxable? Um, I also think it's very important to highlight the nation's ability to provide their own targeted subsidies to offset the rates required and set by the you know, federal, provincial and municipal governments as determined by the communities through priorities and the mechanics of returning tax funds to members you know, based on availability and the budget and the need. Yes, it's a really good question. I think um, you know some of it is quite technical, but I could go through kind of uh, you know the basics of, of how it works. And and what will happen is that there'll be um, you know whether it's an eight and twelve or whether it's a fifty or whatever it is, there'll they'll, they'll be tax coordination agreements that are entered into. And we'll talk about the eight and twelve because that's the current model, but the status quo. But the tax coordination agreements really set out how Canada and British Columbia make tax room for the nation uh, to be able to, to, to have the taxes flow back to the nation as they do from an over, basically in an overwhelming way. Um, and the tax coordination sets out kind of how that works. From an administrative perspective, um, it makes sense for Canada and British Columbia to continue to collect the taxes as they do as they do today, but the system then allows the taxes to flow back to the nation from the federal and provincial systems. So, for example, um, if we take income tax, um, Canada will collect and share back with the nation ninety five percent of all income tax collected from all residents on treaty lands. So the 95% of all income tax flows back. Um, and Canada also collects and shares 100% of all GST from all residents of treaty settlement lands, regardless of the location of the purchase. So any GST collected by Canada from the purchases of residents um, will flow back to the nation. So that's 95% of, of the federal component of income tax and 100% of GST. BC is a little bit different um, and there's still some, obviously some work to do with from BC, but the provincial component of income tax is shared 50%. So 50% of income tax from uh, uh, status residents on TSL 
gets shared and 50% uh, of the PST um, gets shared. So basically the nation gets all of the taxes back that the feds collect um, and gets half of the tax back from the, the, that the province collects. So the overwhelming majority of taxes flow back to the nation. Property taxes, the nation collects itself. So the nation collects property taxes um, and you retain 100% of property taxes. So that goes, that, 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 uh, that flows directly back to the nation. Now, the main issue with respect to property taxes and, and Ronnie talks about rebates and stuff, the, the main issue with, with property taxes is that the nation cannot, um, uh, is not supposed to discriminate with respect to, to rates. So, for example, you're not supposed to charge non-members one rate of property taxes and charge your members another rate of property taxes. When you start charging property taxes, you're supposed to charge the same property tax rate across, across the board. Um, from a tax rate perspective, the, the rates are usually linked to nearby commute, neighborhood communities in terms of property taxes. And then that's through kind of servicing agreement and other things. So from a property tax perspective, you're normally linking your property tax at neighboring communities. It's not a requirement and you're not capped there, but that's basically how it usually works. That said, as you said, Ronnie, it, there, there will need to, and you'll want to from a governance perspective, look at ways to ensure that certain uh, segments of your community, uh, seniors, for example, uh, elders, uh, elders, um, folks on social assistance, those types of things, you'll want to make sure that they have the ability um, through, um, you know, uh, through rebates, through other things that you'll be that you'll want to look at to make sure that they that they retain the full benefit of, of their residences, and that they don't have an undue burden of a property tax uh, on them. But that's a lot of detail. The main principle, though, is that everyone kind of gets taxed the same way as it relates to uh, as it relates to property taxes. You can start collecting property taxes right away, um, but your members will be exempt for those twelve years uh, during that phase out period. I have a question, uh, Bram. When you mention all residents, that's that's both non Indigenous and Indigenous members, right? That's correct. Yeah. So if you have condos, for example, on on your lands, um, and and we mentioned to us, and I mean that's a huge source of revenue for them is all the condo towers that that are that are on their treaty lands. So you be you have the ability to collect property tax um, from every from anyone that's residing on your treaty land. Okay, great. Yeah, I just thought it's important to get that information up there for for all the band members to think about the the bigger picture where our taxes are going to be used uh, for our lands and anyone who resides on them when or if we pay taxes they come back to, do they come back to the nation uh, many members wonder who will manage these tax dollars i understand that that ottawa handles these taxes and then they are returned to the nation uh, can you clarify if this is a uh, hundred percent of the funds or and if there are any parameters delegated to a nation on, on how they will be used, uh, you know, for things typically used, generally used uh, for these tax dollars, such as nation, uh, for the nation, uh, schools, post-secondary uh, grants, uh, infrastructure, and low-income housing, and other, other priorities like that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so, 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 so I guess the first point to note is that um, the use of, by your government of funds that it brings in from taxation is totally discretionary. So it's not tied to anything. It's not tied to any reporting requirements, CRA or anyone else. Um, this is totally discretionary for your government. And so what your government would do, it would, it would, it would look at the basket of funds that it, that it brings in on an annual basis, both in terms of the fiscal arrangements with Canada. And I know that's a subject of another podcast, the fiscal arrangements and all the sources of funds that come in. But your government would look at that. It would look at the sources of funds that come in through its own source revenue, through its businesses, through its economic development, all the other things it does. And then it would look at its taxation revenue and it would make decisions like any other government does in terms of how to utilize those funds uh, in terms of infrastructure, uh, in terms of programs for citizens. Um, essentially, uh, the government would make a decision as a self-governing nation outside of the Indian Act, how to use those funds to, uh, to best support your, uh, your, your, your citizens uh, post-treaty. Uh, post so um, if we don't accept the, the 8 and 12 year mandate and are able to, are, are we able to get something else for that? Uh, do we still collect those sales tax dollars from others who spend money on our lands? Do we, do we know the amount that that would be? I mean, I know it's a, extremely difficult to forecast, but I'm just wondering about uh, Considering the land settlements and other compensation amounts are not set in stone, however, is there uh, some idea of this? Yeah, so I mean, I think a lot. So, so I mean, the the right now, as I said, Josh, like um, this is all in discussion. So, you know, at this point, we have the eight and twelve, and we understand what the eight and twelve means. Um, you know, if we move to a different model. Um, if it's a 50 or something else, then there's going to be a domino effect, right? So we're going to have to take a look at what that means for, um, for all of the other aspects of the tax model, right? Um, because up until now, the implementation of the tax models in part based on the acceptance of the 8 and 12. And communities have been willing to accept the 8 and 12 because they see the benefits of the rest of the model in terms of taxation revenue. Um, and so Obviously, we want to maintain the benefits of the taxation model, um, but we, we want to do away with the 8 and 12. Um, and, um, you know, so, so I think what, as, we, as we move this forward and as we negotiate, we're going to, you know, we'll have to, to, to work out with the federal and the provincial governments how the taxation authority is maintained and how it's implemented while individuals maintain their tax exemption. And the other thing that I should note, and, and sometimes there's a view that, um, you know, once you enter into treaty, you somehow don't have your status. And as we've talked about a lot in community meetings and stuff, uh, treaty doesn't say anything about status. Uh, in fact, status is the one part of the Indian Act that actually survives through treaty. So if you're eligible for status, you maintain your status. And that means that regardless of the phase out, you're able to maintain, uh, and, and what we've proposed is that individuals would be able to maintain their exemption on other reserves in Canada, even if the phase out exists with respect to Wiwakai reserves. So you'd be able to utilize that exemption on other reserves in Canada because you still have your status. And that's something that we would propose to continue as part of the map model because, and this goes right back to the beginning, this is always meant to be about land. 
This wasn't meant to be about an individual. This was meant to be about protecting the integrity of assets on land. So we wanna make sure as part of the model that status Indians, quote unquote, under the Indian Act, uh, as it exists today, we'll be able to maintain that that exemption on, on other reserves, even though there may be a phase out on ours. Yeah, you mentioned learning from other nations uh, on their experiences during their negotiations. Do you have any examples of this that you could share, perhaps? Yeah, so right now there's, um, you know, we're, we're fortunate to work with a, a group of what we're calling lead table uh, uh, negotiators from, from some of the lead tables in British Columbia um, that have advanced negotiations um, and where there's a view that, that there's a potential to put a package together that, that, might, be, um, that might be something that, that a community can support. And we've used this group. Uh, we've used this group, and it includes some of the some of the nations on southern Vancouver Island, um, uh, in the Victoria area. It also includes some of the nations up um, up around the Skeena, um, and and also down in down in Comox as well. Um, and we've been able to use that a group quite effectively in pushing government mandates on. Uh, as Ronnie said off the top, the recognition of title model, doing away with kind of the the the, the other models around um, uh, modifying rights and all of those kind of things, and and having the the, the certainty model go away, and now about the, now now we have the title recognition model. We use that for periodic renewal. We've been using that effectively. So that group has kind of come together to push Finance Canada on this issue. So, um, you know, when we get uh, when we get a victory on this, not if, when we get a victory, it won't be one that's just for Wewakai. It'll be one that we'll be able to apply kind of across the board. And that's why it's going to take a while because Canada is also doing consultations with, uh, with negotiating groups across Canada to see what the appetite is for this. Even though we're very much pushing for a BC solution because we think that there's some advancements that can be made here. Obviously, Canada needs to look at the implications of this across the country. Um, so no one, Josh, no one yet has been able to pierce through this in the context of a treaty, um, but it's something that's being worked on and, and strength in numbers, obviously, is always, uh, always important. I have something I'd like to ask. I know there's 29 self-serving nations, and some of them, or most of them, are 100% tax-free. The government is already having set that in some parts of the country where it's not the 50 years, but completely exempt for life. Is that a goal that is achievable? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, and before I answer that question, I should just make it clear because because you tweak my memory, uh, you tweak my memory on it that um, under whatever model, the nation remains tax exempt. Um, because the nation's a public body performing a function of government. So when we talk about the loss of the Section 87 exemption, we're talking about the implications on, on members, not on the nation. So the nation's not going to pay, pay property tax on its uh, administrative, administrative building and, and things like that. So, um, so I think that's important. We're talking about individuals. The, the nation remains a, a non-taxable entity. Um, but I think you're right, Ronnie, and I think that's one of the things that we've been bringing up in the negotiations. Why is it that you can have a self governing self-government agreement um, where the nation takes on many of the same responsibilities that we're talking about in the treaty um, but yet don't have to deal with the loss of the exemption and the implications of that why can you do that in a self-governing space and but in a treaty space 
we're still talking about the exemption and, and the loss of the exemption. And I think that's really, really important. And I think, you know, it's interesting because across the board, um, we've been making changes in treaty where you can look at it and say, you know, this isn't like this etched in stone treaty. This is part of a reconciliation journey, just like self-government agreements are. Um, and we're seeing the lines between treaty and out of treaty agreements blurred where there's a lot of similarities between what you'd see in a self-governing agreement and what you'd see in a treaty. Um, and so why would it be any different as it relates to taxation? And I think that is one of the things that's resonating. Like Canada is willing to talk about this now. They weren't before. So there has been some steps there. And I think that's part of it. Um, the part of it is that we, we need to take away this kind of piece that's going to really prejudice the ability to have treaties while you're doing self-governing self-government agreements across Canada. So I think it's a really good point and one that we're bringing up and there shouldn't be discrimination, uh, if you will, against uh, nations that are choosing to draw down the self-government in treaty versus choosing to draw down the self-government through a self-government agreement, basically like a, like a West Bank or, or someone else. We've been on the topic of taxation today, so maybe you could fill the community in about uh, Bill Stiptonk and what he does for the Treaty Society. Yeah, I think so. So Bill Stiptonk would be the guy that we get all the detail on, on all of the things that we've talked about today in generality. So so he's uh, so he's a fiscal advisor. Um, he's got he's an economist. He's got many, many, many years of experience, including working for the feds, understands the fiscal system and understands the tax system, which is extremely complicated. He understands it very well. Um, and so part of his role is, is helping us understand how the tax system works and how it impacts members and how it impacts the nation and, and how the nation how the dollars flow back to the nation and those types of things. But he also helps advocate at the table uh, with the, the folks from Finance Canada because he speaks their language. Um, so he helps advocate and move these positions forward and explain from a policy perspective why some of these changes are required. Um, so he is our fiscal advisor. He doesn't come to the table a lot, as you know, Ronnie, but he comes when we need him to, when there are fiscal items on the agenda and when the federal fiscal negotiators are in the room, uh, he joins our table to support that work. Um, and he also helps brief us and helps us really understand the fiscal and tax issues that we need to bring forward. All right, well, I think this has been a great discussion. Um, I just wanted to repeat that, you know, the Wewakai Nation has not agreed to losing our Section 87 tax exemption. Um, you know, that's the, the biggest one for, for a lot of members is, you know, why would we want to give up something we already have? We always want to keep moving, moving forward. So, I, you know, we're going to still push hard to keep that. Like, I mean, there's no point to me in signing a treaty if, you, if you're giving up those rights that we already have. It just... It makes no sense, in, in my opinion. Um, you know, so we're, we're also going to keep members updated on significant changes, you know, to be sure to try and keep them informed through the various methods that the information we have will be shared. You know, as always, if you have any questions, I encourage you to reach out to the office, you know, either by phone or email. Are there any final comments for you, Josh? Yes, uh, I just wanted to thank you all for listening. I would also like to thank Bram and Ronnie uh, for coming onto the podcast for this discussion. I'd like to add to Ronnie's point about uh, asking questions and I have a special request for a, a group of people in our community, which is our youth. 
Um, if any of you have a question or an opinion about treaty, would you please share it with us? I, under, I strongly encourage your guys' involvement in learning of the treaty. It's a, it is important that we understand that it will be us making these decisions that will be affecting our people's future, and this will be sooner than we realize. Uh, we are the next set of leaders and chief and council, uh, so now is the perfect time to start preparing for that. Uh, one step in that direction could be listening to these podcasts and uh, coming up with a question for us, because uh, we'd love to hear it. And are there any final comments for you, Bram? No, I appreciate the discussion. Um, you know, and I think, Ronnie, to your last point, like, why would you agree to something that's... Um, that's not as that's not as beneficial as the status quo and that's a principle that we use across the board like you're, you're not going into treaty to go backwards you're going into treaty to go forward so every time there's an issue that comes up we take a look at it and say how is this going to move the nation forward how is this going to improve the lives of, of citizens um and and we think it does in a lot of ways um, but this is one where we look at it and say, well, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to agree to something that takes something away from members. We have to be able to, we're, we're, we're adding value wherever possible. And so I think that's an important principle that we're bringing to the conversation on taxation as well as other issues. So, yeah, I just want to thank uh, uh, Chief Ronnie for the conversation. And again, Josh, thanks for um, uh, thanks for making an effort to, to get message the messaging out to uh, as many community members as possible. And, and um and we look forward to questions uh, and I uh, look forward to engaging with membership as we go forward. And lastly, I'd just like, you know, thank Brown for your comments, uh, you know, on the section 87, you know, those are to us big. Um, thank you, Josh, for your comments as well. Um, you know, I feel that, you know, the, the youth is going to be impacted, you know, in, into this uh, section 87 is, you know, I feel that, you know, even if we accepted the 50 years and you look at it again, you know, at that time, you know, I, I still feel that uh, in 50 years, this is something that you guys shouldn't have to be dealing with. So I just want to thank everybody today for taking the time to listen to our first ever podcast. You know, we hope you enjoyed it and found it informative and that you will tune in for more uh, as we will be doing these uh, regularly. So thank you again.